Mr. Putin must stop this madness and he must stop it now. Cooler heads must prevail. Russian forces are now 20 miles and closing from Ukraine's second largest nuclear facility. So this imminent danger continues. We narrowly avoided a disaster last night. The international community must be unanimous in demanding Russia's forces stop their dangerous assault. Mr. Putin must stop this madness. So declared U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, on Friday in the aftermath of reports that Russian forces have bombed a Ukrainian nuclear reactor, raising the specter of potential radioactive catastrophe. It was the latest sign of the ferocity of the Russian attack, an invasion that continues unabated, including reports of cluster bombs and widespread attacks on civilians. Is there anything the United States and its Western allies can actually do to stop the madness? We'll talk to Congressman Tom Malinowski, a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and a former top State Department official under President Obama, who spent years trying to punish Russian misbehavior on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States well, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Iskoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And Victoria Bassetti, uh, our other co-host, can't be with us today, so it'll just be me and Clydman. We are have been all watching with horror as these images of what's going on with the Russian invasion. It did not seem like it could get any worse, but it continues to. Cluster bombs, this attack on the nuclear reactor, this, the attacks on cities, civilian areas, uh, infrastructure destroyed. It does seem at this point like there's nothing that can stop Putin. And as horrible as it as it's been, it feels like the worst is yet to come because the Russian forces have actually faltered in this invasion, and uh, I think they underestimated the fierce resistance of the Ukrainians. They overestimated the strength of their own uh, military. And they find themselves outside of some of the biggest population centers and in some ways painted into a corner uh, where they're probably going to have to prevail. They're going to have to just really kind of bomb these places um, and people into submission. So it could get really ugly. And of course, this is the Russian way of war in, in the Putin's well, way. Putin's, Putin's way, way of war. war. We saw it Grozny, in Grozny, in Chechnya, in, 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 right. in Aleppo. The other thing is that um, that's so striking about what's what's happening is you know it's happening in in real time before our eyes on social media and this this fighting and attack on the on the nuclear reactor was live streamed on YouTube people were watching it yeah. happen now it, it is important to say there's still a lot of questions about what happened there as I understand it it was an administrative office uh, that was burning that people saw not the actual uh, reactor itself. And we don't know exactly what the Russian motivations were, and maybe 
Malinowski will be able to shed some some light on that. But still, I'll, I'll tell you, there's nothing like seeing a nuclear facility um, on fire that'll you know get the attention of the world. But look, as these Russian atrocities, and that's what they are, continue, and they are almost certain going to continue, you know, the question's going to be for the West, are we doing enough? The Ukrainians are pleading for a no-fly zone. NATO has rejected that. The Ukrainians are pleading for more military assistance. They say they're not getting enough. We've got the images on TV of one of the worst humanitarian disasters we've seen in modern times. A million refugees at this point, a million refugees from Ukraine have and that crossed number, the border. You know, the, the experts are saying that that number will likely quadruple. Yeah. So even in the days of World War II, uh, you know, pre-television, the horrors of the war and of the invading forces were not being shown, you know, every minute on television screens in the United States, right, and throughout the world. I just wonder, you know, to what degree does the uh, ubiquity of these horrific images, you know, change the calculus about what we need to do and ratchet up it's the pressure? It's going to put Biden and the West under an enormous amount of pressure to do more if it gets as bad as as we think it, it could get. And especially because, look, Putin does not seem like someone who is going to back down. There aren't any... Uh, clear off-ramps, and it seems like he'll act with impunity. But put yourself in Biden's shoes, because uh, the things that people are going to be asking him to do, like a no-fly zone, means shooting down Russian planes and potentially their air defense systems, not just in Ukraine, but in Russia. And soon enough, you may be in a hot war, a hot war between the two powers in the world who hold most of of the nuclear arsenal. So it is a right. almost impossible dilemma for, for a president in this situation. I still think that because of the potential for a nuclear confrontation, I can't believe I'm even saying this, that will keep Biden from trying to impose a no-fly zone in, uh, yeah. in, in Ukraine. Well, we'll see. Very quickly, speaking of coming under pressure of a very different kind, uh, the uh, January 6th committee filed a motion in a court case involving getting access to John Eastman's emails, Eastman having been the lawyer for Donald Trump, who was uh, telling him that uh, Mike Pence could unilaterally discard electoral votes and uh, make Trump the winner. The uh, January 6th committee said that Trump and his allies were part of a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States in their efforts to overturn the election. This immediately has ratcheted up the pressure on Merrick Garland, the attorney general. Where are you? What are you doing? If the January 6th committee says it has good faith reason to believe there's a criminal conspiracy, 
why aren't you investigating the former president? A lot of reasons, a lot of explanations for that, but it is definitely a question on the table for a lot of folks. Well, we should point. talk for a second about the reasons and the explanations because what you what you're talking about is the optics, uh, which can turn into political right. pressure. The reality is that the January 6th committee is engaged in a civil lawsuit trying to get these emails from John Eastman. They had to make the case or that there was criminal activity here because it'll make it a lot easier for them to get the documents that they- The crime fraud the, the, exception crime to fraud the attorney-client exactly. privilege. Yes. And the threshold, but the threshold to prove that is much lower than it is in an actual criminal yeah. case. So- The way they worded it was good faith reason to believe. It, it, right? exa- exactly. Yeah. And, and then secondly- I think Merrick Garland is still going to do everything he possibly can to insulate the Justice Department from politicization. And there's there's almost mm-hmm. nothing more political, or at least in terms of how it is perceived, that he could do than to criminally prosecute an ex-president who is probably going to run for president again. So it might be the right, right. thing to do. It might be legally sound, although that's a big might. But I think it's still going to be a bridge too far for Merrick Garland, but we'll see. The issue is what the lawyers call mens rea. What was in Trump's mind? Did he believe he was committing fraud by urging people to change vote totals and getting Pence to throw out electoral votes? Or did he actually believe his nonsense about a stolen election? It's a really difficult question. But there's another prosecutor who's actively engaged in making that decision. We just wrote about her for Yahoo News. That's Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, who does have an active investigation into Trump's efforts in Georgia, you know, centered around the phone call where he asked Brad Raffensperger to to find him 11,780 votes, one more than he needs to flip the state. And uh, she'll have to face some of the same questions. But at least in that case, she's got Trump's voice you know, as a centerpiece of evidence and people telling him on that phone call, including Raffensperger, what you're being told, Mr. President, is not true. Trump dismisses it and says, you know, you may be in danger yourself, Mr. Secretary Raffensperger, if you don't do what I want. One last point on this. I was talking to a lawyer in Georgia who knows Fonnie Willis well and has worked with her. And um, on the point of intent or mens rea, as you you put it, uh, this lawyer was saying, look, Donald Trump was asking for 7,180 votes, one more vote, which would have put him over the top so he would have won in Georgia. Normally, when what you're doing is saying, hey, look, uh, there's been fraud in the election and we need to investigate the fraud. What you say is every vote counts and the people of Georgia shouldn't be defrauded of their vote. In this particular case, Donald Trump is saying, just give me the votes that I need to win. 
So I think that's going to be part of their argument um, to a jury if she does end up indicting him. So there, there are some. I think this is a, uh, in some ways, a, an easier case on the mens rea front than somewhat so, but, easier. But no, it I don't want to minimize it. The, it's still, it's still going to be yeah. fiercely fought. You know, if it does come to an indictment, and, and, and in the end, maybe Fonnie Willis won't push for an indictment uh, because this will be too hard to overcome. We just don't know. Yeah, we were both down in Atlanta last week and we interviewed two of the key witnesses in the case, Raffensperger himself and uh, Gabriel Sterling, who famously denounced Trump in a news conference in December, telling him that if he doesn't stop his nonsense about a stolen election, somebody is going to get hurt. Somebody is going to get killed. That was uh, just a little more than a month before January 6th. What uh, Sterling told us in the interview is he still believes that Trump needs to be held uh, accountable, but he was emotionally torn about this investigation because he fears it will only make Trump even more of a martyr. Some Something to think about, although not necessarily the basis upon which Fonnie Willis should make her decision. In any case, people can find that story, key witness in Georgia's Trump investigation. I'm emotionally torn about the case on our Yahoo News website. And now let's get to our guest to talk about the horrors of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let's get to it. We now have with us Congressman Tom Malinowski from New Jersey, a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Happy to be back. So we have all been watching in horror the savagery of the Russian attack on Ukraine. And I guess the question at this juncture, after the bombing of the nuclear reactor, the use of cluster bombs, everything we are witnessing, are we doing enough to stop Vladimir Putin at this point? I don't know if he can be stopped. I know that he can be made to lose. I know that we can ensure that as terrible as this is, he and his regime and what he stands for come out of this defeated and that the United States and our allies come out stronger and more united. I had a list for the Biden administration of a whole bunch of things I wanted them to do two weeks ago, one week ago. They've done most of those things. And I think they've done them very, very effectively, particularly building a unified coalition of countries across Europe and around the world, doing things that I thought would not be possible a short time ago. But we are also going to have to face some tough choices in the coming weeks. There are some decisions we haven't made yet that Putin might force us to make as this gets worse and worse. Let's hear what some of those are, because we know that some of them right now don't seem to be on the table, like establishing a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine. There's also the question of uh, whether or not to ban imports of oil and gas from Russia. So what are some of those tough choices? Well, let's, let's take those two, and then I'll tell you what I think the tough choices really are. Okay. Banning imports of Russian oil, I'm for it. Sign me up, but it won't do much. It's mostly symbolic. First of all, I think most of our refiners who've been buying Russian oil are stopping anyway because it just looks bad. Second of all, it won't stop Russia from selling oil to other countries. So, you know, we might buy a bit more from Canada, a bit more less from Russia. 
We don't actually get that much from from Russia. No, we don't. Right? And, and look, people people are surprised to hear this because they also have heard that we produce more oil than we need for our own domestic consumption. So why are we buying it from anyone else? Well, that's just how the oil markets work. And it has to do with geography and what's easiest for particular refiners. If you're in Hawaii, you know, you, you may find it easier to get a shipment of Russian oil than something from the mainland of the United States. But anyway, be that as it may, that that's we should do that for symbolic reasons. Every penny counts, but it's not going to do very much. There, if we really wanted to shut down Russian oil exports, we could try to do that. We could try to shut down their exports to Europe and to Asia too. But that would absolutely have a huge impact on global energy prices and gas prices in our country. I think there are some of my Republican colleagues have been urging Biden to do that while preparing to then blame Biden for the inevitable rise in gas prices. And, you know, I've said to them, if you're serious, fine, let's go out on the steps of the Capitol, Republicans and Democrats, hand in hand, and say to the American people, this is what we got to do. We are jointly taking responsibility for the impact and we're not going to politicize it. So anyway, that's the gas thing. No fly zone would require us to shoot down Russian planes. It would require us to fire the first shots in a war between Russia and the United States. And I think Biden is wise to avoid that. I think it would actually help Putin in some ways by turning this into a war that he could defend to his people, that he could rally the Russian people around. He can't defend destroying Kiev. He has to lie about it. But if it were a war between him and NATO, between him and the United States, it might actually help him politically. And if it escalated, Ukraine would be destroyed anyway, maybe even more thoroughly. So yeah, those are things that are being debated. I think, what are some other choices we may have to make? Imagine Kiev is totally surrounded in coming days and weeks. Right now, we're getting supplies in and out, food, ammunition, everything else. But if it's completely blockaded, do we launch something like the Berlin Airlift, where American military aircraft are flying in supplies to the people who are defending that city. It would be consistent with Biden's policy. It wouldn't be shooting at the Russians. It would be daring them to shoot at us, though. And, and of course, it would be very, very risky. Why wouldn't they shoot at us under those circumstances if they have Kiev surrounded and they're trying to cut off supplies going into the city and we start flying them in? They didn't shoot at us when we were flying stuff into Berlin, because again, that would have been starting the war. Look, the rules of the road between the United States and Russia set during the Cold War are that we can fight each other with proxies, but we don't fight each other directly, because that would trigger potentially a catastrophic, potentially nuclear war. So we paid people to shoot at them in Afghanistan in the 1980s. They paid people to shoot at us in Afghanistan in the last decade. We fought multiple proxy wars against each other around the world. And right now, of course, America is arming Ukrainians to kill Russian soldiers. But a direct confrontation is something that we have wisely avoided. Now, if we're flying supplies into Kiev, we're not shooting at Russians. And so 
would they provoke a war by shooting down an American aircraft flying in food or even, say, ammunition to Kiev? So if Kiev is besieged in the way that you described it, and there's a, essentially a full blockade and food and humanitarian assistance and other things aren't getting in, you could support the kind of airlift, a Berlin type of airlift. I would support. Yeah, I think we need to be bold. I think if you look at the history of the Berlin airlift, it was it was successful in a practical sense. It got food to people in Berlin who needed it, but it was also a huge moral and psychological victory for the United States in the Cold War. Do you know if the Biden administration is actively considering that? I I think they're I don't want to speak for them. I, I think they're they they're aware that we may face this kind of circumstance. Have you talked to them about this? I've yeah, I, I raised it in a hearing at the Foreign Affairs Committee a couple of days ago with uh, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman. And I don't expect them to be telling us right now what they would do under that circumstance, but I, I hope this is one of the contingencies that they're thinking about. We need to be bold. This is a new world. Is Putin a rational actor at this point? If you'd asked me a few years ago, maybe even a few months ago, I would have said that the man is evil, but rational, ruthless, but not disconnected from reality. I'm having second thoughts about that right now because he seems to have deceived himself about what Ukraine has become over the last 10 years, how united the people of Ukraine are in believing in their own national identity and independence and European path, how even the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine hates the idea of this Russian aggression, and of course, how fiercely Ukrainians would resist a Russian invasion. He seems to have believed his propaganda in this case with disastrous consequences for himself and for his country. So if he's not a rational actor, how does that change the calculus about what we do and should do? He certainly wants us to believe right now that he's capable of anything. And he wants us with that possibility in mind to hesitate in taking certain steps to protect Ukraine. And I think it would be irresponsible for us not to take into account the possibility that he might do incredibly dangerous things. And yet at the same time, I still believe that he understands the rules of engagement that have held between the United States and Russia or the Soviet Union for the last several decades. I don't think he starts a nuclear war over humanitarian aid deliveries or even deliveries of ammunition. I want to, Congressman, just step back for a minute, you said uh, that this is a new world, and you spend much of your time actively engaged on the Foreign Affairs Committee in the world and, and the national security risks that it poses to the United States and, and around the world. Why is this moment so important? And for Americans who may say, well, this is happening half a world away from me, it doesn't really affect my life, what would you tell them? 
when Hitler seized part of Czechoslovakia in 1938, it was a small country half a world away. It didn't affect any of our lives. But I think we understand today that it opened a Pandora's box, that once, once you establish that big countries can swallow up small countries, that aggressive dictatorships can change borders with tanks, then all hell breaks loose in the world. Every single border in the world is artificial. Every single border is the product of some previous war or empire rising and falling. Every single person in the world has some kinship, some association with people across an international border based on language and culture and, and history. And once borders are up for grabs, once borders can be erased by whoever has the power to do it, we're back in the world that led to the Second World War. We, we've had lots of wars. I mean, like, you know, we've had from Vietnam to Korea to Afghanistan to Iraq. It's not been, it's not been an easy world since 1945, but we've not had wars that, that claim millions, tens of millions of lives. And with the modern weaponry we have now, look at what's being unleashed on these Ukrainian cities. That's not something we want to see. So that's what I, I, that's what this is about. I think most Americans understand that instinctively right now. They know that China's watching this. They know that other uh, potentially aggressive powers around the world are watching this. They want to know what we're willing to do. And that's why the world needs to conclude that even if Putin wins some tactical victories, he is facing a strategic defeat. You were recently in Ukraine shortly before the invasion. You met with President Zelensky. Uh, you traveled uh, in the country as part of a bipartisan CODEL. As you have watched the events unfold over the last uh, you know, 10 days, have you been surprised by what's happened at the, the way the Russians have gone in and the strength of the Ukrainian resistance led by Zelensky. I'm impressed. I'm inspired. I'm not surprised. Every Ukrainian I spoke to when we were in Kiev a month ago said that, that they would fight. And it didn't seem like false bravado to me. It, it, it felt very real. I'm not surprised that they're doing well because morale means so much in warfare. They, they are motivated, they're protecting their homes, they're protecting their freedom, they're protecting their families. I'm not surprised that the Russians are disorganized and demoralized. When Putin lies to his generals, his generals have to lie to their officers and the officers have to lie to their frontline troops. Nobody is able, no, no one was in a position to tell those Russian soldiers that they were going into a foreign country that would resist them and fight for every single inch. Is that just really bad intelligence by the Russians to not know the ferocity of the resistance they would face, or they were just afraid to tell the truth to Vladimir Putin? It's just a lie. It's what happens when you have a government that is based on lies. They're, they're not... There's no process in the Kremlin where, where the dictator gets intelligence briefings from people who tell him what he doesn't want to hear. This is, this is a one-man dictatorship. And by the way, Russia's not had a one-man dictatorship since Stalin. 
all the Soviet leaders, as much power as they had, they at least had to, you know, they had to deal with other power centers in the country. Putin has had 20 years to build a one-man dictatorship. I don't know if there are too many people who can tell him the truth. And when he tells a lie, when he says, this is a peacekeeping mission, this is a liberation, we're just fighting a bunch of, of Nazis and drug dealers in Kiev, the officers have to, they, they can't contradict that when, when they're telling their troops, when they're briefing their troops about what they're going in for. And so it makes sense to me that a lot of these young Russian soldiers, these poor young Russian soldiers, went in with no clue that they would face this kind of fierce resistance. So none of that surprises me. It, look, this is the Russians still have all the advantages, or most of the advantages. And so I, I'm, not, I'm not naive about the prospects over the coming weeks. How concerned were you about the... Um attack on the nuclear plant? And, and have you been briefed at all about what the Russians are trying to do going after these, these nuclear facilities the way they've been doing? I, I have not been briefed. I don't even know from what I've read whether they were deliberately going after it. Maybe. Uh, if, if they had been, it seems to me they could have destroyed it fairly easily with an artillery barrage. So maybe it was a deliberate attempt to terrorize us and the Ukrainians by getting close to the plant. Maybe they're just firing indiscriminately as they tend to do and hitting all kinds of things. I don't know. If Putin is, in fact, as you say, the most powerful dictator in Russia since Stalin, it does raise the question, can he be deposed? Anybody can be deposed. <laughs> And a lot well, of Putin's behavior is driven by the knowledge that he can be deposed, the fear that he can be deposed. This is why he fears Ukraine, because Ukraine is the country closest to Russia in history and culture and geography, where the people did depose a corrupt and authoritarian leader. He hates the example that the Ukrainians set for the Russian people. This is why he wants to crush the place. So he's paranoid about it, but it is incredibly hard. And I think a little bit irresponsible for Americans to be going on TV and on podcasts and saying the Russian people need to rise up. Which is what Senator Lindsey Graham just said, invoking Brutus and Colonel uh, von Stauffenberg. Yeah, it's easy for us to say. There are a lot of Russians who have been very courageous in recent days, weeks, months, and years who are in prison, who've been driven out of their countries, who've been poisoned. So can it happen? Yes. But we, we need to understand it is a very dangerous and difficult thing to stand up to a dictator like this. Let's give all support we can to Russians who have the courage to fight for democracy in their country, but, but recognize that only they can make these incredibly difficult decisions. I've got one other question about what the U.S. can do. And, and if Russia prevails, at least in the short term, and succeeds in taking over the country, then the war against a sovereign nation uh, might be over, but an insurgency will just be starting. And I guess the question is, what role should the U.S. play in that effort? We've been sending uh, military assistance, weapons, but should we be 
training uh, insurgents on the ground in Ukraine, or is that too dangerous for us? So two things here. Num- number one, the Russians may be able to, probably will be able to defeat the Ukrainian army in these cities that they're attacking, but there's no way that they can hold and govern these places. They may have had the fantasy of installing a puppet government in Kiev, but who who the heck is going to follow that government? Who Civil servants aren't going to go into their offices. There's no police or military force in Ukraine that can enforce the orders of such a government. So, so that means the Russians will have to stay in force. And if they stay in force, they will be targets because they're hated overwhelmingly by pretty much everybody there. So, uh, and, and, and they haven't brought enough troops in to, to do the work. I mean, compare it to our experience in Iraq. They're bringing in fewer troops than we did to Iraq to occupy presumably a country that is much larger a country that, unlike Iraq, had a legitimate government that was supported by the majority of its people, a country where the armed resistance is already present and active, which was not the case in Baghdad when we rolled in. And we had a miserable time in Iraq. They're going to have I mean, be 10 times more miserable. Now, what do we do about it? One of the big question marks right now is what happens to Western Ukraine. The assumption among Western policymakers was that at the beginning of this was that the worst case scenario was Putin takes Kiev and Kharkiv and uh, the southern Ukraine, but that he was not going to even try to go as far as Western Ukraine, the city of Lviv, the, the Polish border, because this is the most Western oriented, nationalistic, non-Russian speaking part of the country. I, I think all bets are off right now. I think he, Putin right now wants to take the whole damn thing. So that obviously would have been a center of organized resistance. The, the Ukrainian government could have reorganized itself there. But will that now be possible? And if he is planning to go for it, I think it does raise more serious questions about a Western military intervention. A, a no-fly zone would be would require the United States to shoot at Russians from the get-go. But would we consider, for example, preemptively with NATO allies, putting a force in Western Ukraine, drawing a line and saying, you're not crossing that line. We're gonna have a divided Ukraine like East and West Germany, North and South Korea during the Cold War. Are you urging such a course right now? No, I think it's something we have to be thinking about to put in U.S. military troops on the ground in Western Ukraine to deter the Russians? I think we do need to at least think through the potential risks and benefits of having a NATO force, not necessarily U.S. troops, but obviously it would have to be guaranteed if we did this by U.S. air power in that portion of Ukraine. So that's an area where the Russians currently are not present at all, so there would be no risk of, of a shooting war uh, unless the Russians came forward. They're not there now. They're not close to them now. And you know, imagine they do take Kiev and Kharkiv, even Odessa. They're going to be battered. They're, they're, they're not going to be in much of a position to take on a Western military or any military uh, after that. All they will have is the nuclear option. And of course, that's the scary part. 
but would they would they initiate such a war under those circumstances is the question that policymakers would have to ask. Seems like a pretty big risk to take if we're talking about whether the Russians might initiate nuclear war. It is perhaps a very big risk. On the other hand, the, the alternative might be the Russian army on the Polish border, on the Romanian border, on the Hungarian border, the complete elimination of the Ukrainian state, several million more refugees. Would it not be viewed by the Russians as a as a concession on our part that you know we'll we'll hold the western part of Ukraine, but effectively you can have the east, I mean, or or you can have Kiev, the the, the capital. We're not going to. F- it, it's pretty clear that neither the United States nor any of our NATO allies are prepared to fight for Kiev beyond the provision of very effective military assistance to the Ukrainian military. But we're not, you know, they, the Ukrainians know we are not going to put NATO forces in Kyiv or in the skies above Kyiv. That, that has been clearly communicated. So would it be a concession? I think under those circumstances, and again, I'm, I'm speculating about incredibly painful choices we may face in the coming weeks, even under that circumstance, we would not be accepting in a political sense, Russian domination of any part of Ukraine, any more than we accepted Russian domination of the Baltic states or East Germany during the Cold War. The question is whether there's anything we can do to ensure that there is at least a functioning Ukraine in the West during what will be a very difficult period of confrontation with Russia in the coming years. Just got a couple more. I want to take you back to your trip to Ukraine when you met with Zelensky. Can you give us your sense of Zelensky, having met him, talked to him, the measure of the man who does seem to be the man of the moment? I've always found him to be an incredibly compelling figure. He's just obviously a decent person, a well-motivated person, not your typical Ukrainian politician, not a former oligarch, not somebody who is uh, corrupt in any way, idealistic, unlikely, unusual in that part of the world. We may have wondered whether he was up for the challenge of leading a country in a crisis like this. Nobody would have known that. He's been tested in the last few weeks and I think has passed the test spectacularly. One more. You uh, Before you were in Congress, uh, you were Assistant Secretary for Human Rights at the State Department. And one of the things you did was try to punish Russian misbehavior and sanction human rights abusers in the Russian Federation for the annexation of Crimea, for the interference in the 2016 election. As you look back on how we responded to Putin's various transgressions. Are there things that we could have done earlier or more of that might have made a difference so we never got to this point? We should have done a lot more to end our own complicity in the corruption that keeps Putin in power. I think Western greed has enabled Russian corruption all of these years. We're opening our eyes to that finally. We're going to be seizing yachts and villas and 
private planes and soccer teams, hopefully, and, and sending these kleptocrats back to Siberia where they belong. We should have done that a long time ago. And a lot of people made that argument did over you, the last decade. Did uh, you? I, I, yeah, I did. And by the way, you've you've introduced uh, bipartisan legislation to seize the yachts and the soccer teams and whatever else uh, and redirect that money to the Ukrainian people, correct? I think we should seize the yachts and hand over the keys and deeds of title to the Ukrainian government, like now. And, and that is unprecedented, and it does make some people uncomfortable because it's not a judicial process. And so we've introduced a bill that allows it to happen. There's a sunset clause. It's only Russia. There have to be links to corruption. But I think under these circumstances, using the wealth that brought Putin to power to help Ukraine, to help rebuild Ukraine ultimately, would be a fitting answer to this crime. So that's one thing I think we should have done a lot earlier. The other thing I think we should have done is to stood up to him in Syria. That was the biggest mistake of the Obama administration, in my view, that we we had a policy of not doing anything that might trouble the Russians in Syria because we were worried the Russians would mess with our counter-ISIS campaign, which was our only real priority in that country. And so we watched the systematic destruction of Aleppo and other places in Syria in, in the same ways that that are now you know, that we're now disgusted by when we see Putin destroy Kiev or, or Kharkiv. I think he drew a, a lesson from that experience that that he, he could do these things with relative ease and that we wouldn't stand up to him. Well, Congressman, one of the reasons we like having you on is you speak without fear or favor, regardless of whether it might discomfort people in your own party. And you've certainly shown that uh, here today. I want to thank you and we'll definitely want to stay in touch as this crisis unfolds. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. 